Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. This is Tom Salemi, Content Director of Healthogy. And I'm here with Steve Krupa, CEO of Silos Group and host of the Breaking Health Podcast. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Hi, Tom. How are you? Well, good, good. I'm sorry your Yankees joined my Red Sox on the uh, on the sidelines, but nice. uh, <laughs> I think nice. neither neither were going anywhere. So uh, the city is all about the Mets right now. So. <laughs> they should be. It's it's uh, been an exciting series. Um, so let's talk about our, our guest today, Steve Wiggins. Uh, he is the CEO and chairman of Remedy Partners, and he's. Uh, He's been doing healthcare for a long, long time, both as a as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, and as an investor. So he really has a broad range of experience, and he's now working uh, again with with Remedy Partners. And I was intrigued at the at the start of the interview. Uh, he, he described himself as a, an episode traveler. I don't know if he was a, a Doctor Who fan or something, but it, <laughs> it was kind of a mystic sort of term. What what did that mean? Uh, give us a little detail on what an episode traveler is. And talk a bit about uh, sort of where Steve has fit into uh, into healthcare's uh, uh, ongoing revolution. Yeah, I think I think Steve is a legitimate celebrity in in uh, healthcare innovation. He's been doing this for well over thirty years. So when he says he's an episode traveler, um, I think it, he's first saying, "Look, I've been doing this for a while." And I think the second component of that is is that uh, you know his current company, Remedy Partners, is focused on bundled payments, which involves something called a, quote, episode of care. Um, and, and he has been thinking about the concept of an episode of care and the concept of reimbursing providers around episodes of care from way back when he was, uh, was running uh, Oxford Health Plans, uh, which uh, was one of the, 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 the real innovative, high-flying uh, healthcare HMOs in the 1990s. Um, all the way through his career to today, and um, and I know that that back then he felt that physicians and providers should be compensated for a bundle of work that they do, and it has taken all the way to today for this idea of bundled payments and episodes of care to make their way uh, in a meaningful way into the reimbursement mechanism uh, for Medicare. But he refused uh, ownership of the of the bundled payment model. He's very modest that way. Well, I yeah, I think. <laughs> well, you know, he's been around uh, around healthcare as, as as we'll learn when when you listen to the interview. He's done ten startups. He's been a VC, private equity guy, so he's seen deals and ideas for as long as the modern uh, healthcare system has been evolving. Um, and certainly, this is one idea that's been around for a long time. So maybe it wasn't his idea per se, but he certainly liked it, and he tried to adopt it in many different occasions. And I think we're probably right now at the point where technology uh, and a good idea have sort of caught up to one another. And uh, it looks like it's, it's going to be one of the, the primary ways providers get reimbursed on a going forward basis. And that's a great segue because Steve will be uh, at our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit on November 3rd at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Boston. He'll be uh, on one of our great panels and Steve will be there as well. Um, and let's just uh, let's hop in an interview. It was a great discussion, and uh, let's get it started. Very good. Welcome, Steve. 
Thank you. So we've got we we've established that you and I have a lot in common as uh, as venture capital investors, but right now um, you've really got a, a pretty extraordinary opportunity that you're spending a lot of time on at Remedy Partners, um, and I know it goes back to some of your experience when you were running a health plan. So take us through how you ended up um, with such a large personal investment in terms of time and energy and effort uh, in the bundled payment space today. I've been an episode traveler, as we call uh, uh, fellow brethren in this space. I've been an episode traveler uh, since the early 90s when I launched an episode program inside of Oxford Health Plans and uh, we had 11 specialty groups that built bundle payment programs and launched them in the metropolitan New York market. Later on, um, I had built a company called Health Market, and we were sort of a cross between what is today Castlight and what is today Oscar. It was a uh, new insurance company that we created. We used bundled payments and episodes of care as the building block of both how we engaged um, patients and beneficiaries in managing their own care and in how we controlled the cost. So um, that was my second venture. We grew that business. It's now owned by Blackstone. Um, We built insurance products that used episode of care allowances and and financial incentives, both for providers and patients. That's primarily commercial business, right, when you were thinking about it back then? Yep. We were selling health market. We sold to small groups primarily. Uh, Usually it was 10 to 50 was our target, and we had a nice run in Texas and Ohio and Florida were three markets where we launched. And now, uh, and and now the Steve, government is uh, stealing your ideas, it sounds like, and, and you're, you're okay with that. <laughs> well, yeah, bundle payments wasn't my idea, Steve. I'd like to claim it, but it wasn't my idea. Actually, way back in the 80s, uh, when I was running Oxford, it was really the late 80s, we began, along with other health plans, uh, moving towards bundle pay- payments for transplants. And those were some of the first bundle payments that payers used. Um, around that time, we, uh, some of us expanded the use. And so it was already in the lexicon of the policy, uh, healthcare policy community. It was already something that was being tried in various circles. And today, of course, we're at a point where it's achieving, uh, that point where Andy Grove would call it the inflection point. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's really taking off. First, Medicare uh, has launched their bundle payment program that's grown to be $13 billion of spending, and uh, it's, it has the largest participation of any demonstration program in, in history. And you've also got states like Arizona and Tennessee, I'm sorry, uh, Arkansas and Tennessee and Ohio that are launching mandatory bundle payment programs for the, their Medicaid population. And then you've got uh, companies like United and some Blue Cross plans that are beginning to launch bundle payment programs. So this is a payment concept that's here to stay, and um, 
we're delighted that we got in early on the Medicare program and grew to be the largest contractor in the program at this point. Yeah, again, the company is Remedy Partners. And for for those listening that may not um, know exactly what is meant by bundled payments, um, just a quick example. I know it, it deals with episodes of care and then the idea that episodes of care have a certain value ascribed to them. Uh, but maybe you can just give us a little bit of a detailed lesson on how it works. Sure. Well, an episode has a beginning and an end uh, that you define in a variety of ways. Sometimes insurance companies define the beginning of an episode as when someone's first diagnosed with something, like let's say the diagnosis is a pregnancy, and uh, the end of the episode might be defined by the payer as um, 30 days after normal delivery that doesn't have a complication. And for that period of time, they will look at their history and say, on average, it costs us 35000 or whatever the a dollar amount is for that period of time. And that will become the target price that they go out to their providers and say, we would like to get contracts entered into with someone that takes responsibility for all the services during that, that 30, 60, 90-day period, depending on how long the episode lasts, and um, allow the providers to benefit by keeping some of some or all of the savings, but delivering to the insurer a guaranteed savings. And so the federal government's program starts an episode when the patient is admitted to a hospital for any one of 48 broad condition categories. And the episodes can last 30 or 60 or 90 days after the patient's out. So they're mm-hmm. typically... Most most are choosing 90-day post-acute peak period, so it's about a 95-day episode. The average is about 30,000 that is being spent during that 30 during that 90-day period of time. And um, the government essentially has gone out to providers and said, if you'll give us a 2% discount on that 90-day period, and you take responsibility for being measured for quality and being measured for outcomes, we'll let you keep any savings beyond the government's 2% savings. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the program works, and it's pretty well thought out by the government, although right. it's, it has many critics. It's quite well done. It's amazing how the government is becoming an innovator in healthcare, right? I mean, that's uh, many people think that's sort of a, an oxymoron that the government can can innovate, but really this new uh, regime at CMS has come up with, is taking, I think, some of the better ideas that have been around for a while and presenting themselves as being very serious about them. You're right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's not like what we are used to seeing. And, and, uh, but I, they're innovating. And there, there was a guy, Rick Gilfillan, who was running the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which was an Obamacare creation. Uh, he's been succeeded by a guy named Pat Conway, who's uh, equally able. And so they've thankfully had leadership that's very strong, and they've staffed the organization with really dedicated, talented people who are doing their best. And the good news is they actually listen. They know they're in an experimental, challenging phase, and it's the first time in my life that the government does such a good job of listening to feedback and changing uh, 
their plans based on what they're learning. And uh, it's a good sign. I, I, I think in Obamacare, all the attention went to the subsidies and the mandates and um, all the insurance parts of it. Right. And people are paying much attention to this payment reform, which in my opinion is the, re- is the real story. So your responsibility at Remedy Partners then is to, if, I would characterize the business as software-enabled service, if that's, if that's all right with you. You can change my characterization if you like. But, but you're stepping in and, and you are providing the tools to the provider group, probably led by a, by a hospital, to actually perform under this type of a measurement system. Is that right? That's right. Most providers need a lot of help in a lot of areas. Some of the really, really big organizations are trying to do it themselves, and many of those are coming to us now later in the game saying, you know what, we could use software, we could use analytics help, we could use training tools. We'd like to use your call center. We'd like to use um, some of your specific tools. Uh, Like we have a Care at the Right Location 2.0, which is a software module that helps people determine who really should go to a nursing home versus home. Uh, It can be prescriptive on what the patient's going to need in the post-acute environment. We've got other tools. If someone does end up in a in a uh, in a post-acute facility to guide on what's needed, what's the reasonable length of time, uh, all developed internally. Um, and so, yeah, uh, providers aren't used to this. A lot of it are. A lot of it is the sort of thing that gets historically done in an insurance company, and a lot of it's just novel work that they've never done. But um, we're the general contractor to the federal government, and providers can come into these programs through our contract and not have to take all the risk. There is a fair bit of risk, and sure. so part of what we do is we take risk alongside them. So the business model is that you are actually the, the, the direct liaison to the federal government, and the providers come in under the rates and so forth that you've negotiated, I'm assuming, on a region-by-region basis. And yeah, that's right. No, go ahead. Most, I, I, provi- most providers join us because we're the cheapest way into the program. It, right. it would cost a provider anywhere from 4 to 5% of spending on these bundles to manage it themselves. And we spread those administrative costs out over, um, you know, now we have 1,200 live programs. There's over $5 billion of spending running through our program and so we can get a provider into the program for 2%. And so it's just a lot less expensive. And, um, and we get paid out. We, we don't get paid the administrative fee until there's savings. And so mm-hmm. that's attractive, too. We take the working capital risk. And some providers want to take more risk. On the downside, some want to take less. Some say, yeah, I'll take 80% of the risk, and uh, uh, some want 50, some want 30. <laughs> it's, uh, right. Right. It's, it's all over the map. But there is full downside risk in this program. If you spend more than the government's allocation to you for those bundles that you're responsible for, you have to write the federal government a check. Okay. Are you, are, is it mostly the inpatient services, or the, I imagine if you're managing through discharge, there's a network of all different types of providers depending on the, 
the episode that you're actually taking risk for their services as well? Yeah. We, uh, in the bundle, you have all the acute care spending, which is all the hospital bills, all the physician bills while the patient's in the hospital, which are your Part B bills, and then all the Part B spending and Part A spending when, they, when a patient gets out. And these are all Medicare patients. So under regular Medicare, 23 to 25%, depending on the location, are going to a skilled nursing facility. Sometimes as many as 50% are going to a skilled nursing facility where a really well-run Medicare Advantage plan might have 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. go to a skilled nursing facility. And so um, the spending will vary depending on the location and the patterns in that geography. But um, the spending is, is usually about two-thirds in the post-acute and one-third in the acute stage. And so during the hospitalization, that's about a third of the spending. Um, and so that's how it divides out. And so we 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 tend to spend more time managing after the patient's out of the hospital and our partners are typically either the hospital or it could be a hospitalist group or it could be an orthopedic group. And they're generally doing the heavy lifting while they're in the hospital of making sure that they're getting to the right location. And we're figuring out what it might be that keeps the patient from being successful Mm -hmm. in the home. I mean, the good news is when patients go home, studies show they're, they have they recover better. Mortality is materially lower. Uh, risk adjusted in the home than in a skilled nursing facility, um, and so it's always in the best interest of the patient to try to get them back to making coffee, feeding their dog, you know, getting right. up, uh, moving around, being in their life again. And our goal is to get them there because it's going to result in a better outcome all around. And usually the impediment isn't that, um, isn't some physical, isn't some medical issue. It's usually a psychosocial issue. It could be dementia. It could be that they just don't have the ability to walk or get around and they need a little help. They might need transportation. They might need to find some adult daycare during the day. And so our program set all that up. And then we build little mini HMOs around each of our sites. So we have a nursing home, a home care agency, a physician group, and each of those providers we try to link in very tightly to this program. So the patient, the difference between this and the patient that just goes into the hospital and gets discharged is we never have a moment when we don't know where they are and who's, who's responsible for taking care of them. Right. Yeah. And you know, that so alone, I think this is a part of your business that most people don't realize that you're managing two thirds post acute care. And that the, in fact, you took the words out of what I was thinking when you said psychosocial model. The idea that, that so much of the risk with these patients is, is that they come out of the hospital and they, they don't do well once they're discharged. And that, that really, it sounds like this is the part of the model that you've figured out. And certainly you wouldn't expect. A hospital themselves to have a lot of emphasis in this area under a fee-for-service reimbursement model. Yeah, they don't. They're getting better. Um, this requires process change, and that's the tough part of bundle payments. Is you're really asking people to change, and they've learned to operate in accordance with the current payment model, which rewards in some respects, behavior that's not in the patient's interest. And when you move to bundle payments, 
it's all about the patient's episode. And so you've now organized the payment system around the patient's experience. And so there's a little more connection between the providers. The providers generally understand what it is they need to do if they're the they're the orthopod handling a hip replacement or they're a, cardiovascular, they're a cardiologist managing congestive heart failure or something. Um, it's, it's a little easier to get your head around than population health, which is yeah. the phrase of the day. But what <laughs> so, is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can mean so many different yeah. things. Do, yeah. do the patients know that they're involved with you? And I would imagine they eventually know, right? Because you're being, you're, you're monitoring them in, in whatever way you can. But do they know prior to the procedure? How is, how do the patients get involved in this process? Well, both the Medicare program and all commercial programs always have a notification. Of course, Medicare is a highly regulated version of it, and so yes, patients have to all be notified and. Um, then there's an onboarding process. In our case, we try to onboard them and notify them at the same time that, one, you're in the program. Two, um, there's new tools available to you. There's a, a portal, which is a, you, know, a, a, you can get on your phone. It can be an app on your phone, or you can get it on a browser on your computer to uh, go get your medical records. You can... Um, as a patient, you can approve family members and neighbors and whoever whoever your people are that take care of you. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to know know that, and we want to invite them into this cocoon, this protected HIPAA compliant co- cocoon, where they can go get information. They can communicate with nurses who are managing um, the transitions. They can communicate with the the physicians who are providing the orders and doing the that uh, and managing the the patient's overall care, they can communicate with with anybody in the care process, and they can go in and actually pull their medical records. We're you know one of the things people don't realize we're already fully integrated with over 970 discrete electronic medical record implementations, meaning a hospital or a, or. A, 800 of them are in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're the largest health information exchange in the nation wow. in terms of an actually functioning exchange. Right. Uh, we, don't, we don't sell ourselves as that, but um, we've had to integrate with so many sites across the continuum because when you have an episode payment model, it pulls the IT infrastructure, it makes the IT infrastructure more logical to pull together. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, when we onboard a patient, we tell them, you're in a bundle payment program, you, uh, you're automatically in it, the government doesn't give you a choice of getting out, and, you know, unlike an ACO where people can opt out. In bundle payments, the patient can't opt out, you're in. Gotcha. And that's the government's attempt to try to try to get at least some semblance of the savings that are being achieved in managed care. So do you think it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting, the, there was a lot of criticism, right, about the High Tech Act uh, and the subsidization of the electronic health records 
that that wasn't really going anywhere because the value proposition up until that point in time for an electronic medical record was a little bit hazy. At least that's the way I always saw it. Is sort of who who should pay for this? But it sounds like uh, CMS stands to benefit from all of this data if it can be integrated as part of programs uh, like yours. I mean, that's a pretty staggering number, 970 EMR uh, interfaces on your end. Um, and, right. I'm, and I'm assuming that without that data, the work that you're doing is probably very difficult or if not impossible. Uh, well, it's not impossible, but it's made significantly more difficult if you don't have software tools that pull this information. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Uh, it's a lot of money that's been spent. Some of it, you could argue, um, wasn't as wisely spent, but certainly when you're giving hospitals incentives to deliver an HL7 feed out to your to your provider partners out there in the community, that makes a lot of sense. Um, most of the hospitals can still only deliver an ADT. Most of them still can't deliver the continuing care document template, but they can deliver the admission discharge transfer protocol data set, which is enough. It's the physician notes, it's all the codes, it's the discharge plans, it's it's structured and unstructured data, so it's quite valuable. Um, we don't, we are not getting in those feeds generally uh, scan results or a lot of the diagnostic results. Um, that's still to come in most of these. You know, most people are still behind, and. Depending, regardless of which EMR a hospital's on, whether they're on Epic or Cerner or Meditech or Allscripts or whoever, um, the way that's implemented at any given site varies. So if you've done one Epic implementation, you've done one Epic implementation. Right. <laughs> if you've done one Allscripts, you, you know, the hospital stores, you know, everything's stored a little differently. So there's a mapping exercise associated with each of these integrations. It's still arduous, but this is going to change the way healthcare works. When we, in 10 years, when this is a little further down the road, we will be able to do things that we just haven't been able to do. I'll give you an example. We can pull information out, and we run analytics against um, just the data that we're getting out of the hospital's EMR. And we're able to predict a variety of things, and we're getting better at that. Our predictive tools are still being refined, but um, you can predict who's likely to be readmitted. You can predict who's like, quite quite frankly, who may who's at risk of dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to change a lot if you guide people to know. You know, this is somebody that you might want to have a palliative care conversation with, or. Uh, this is somebody that you need to follow very closely because they're at very high risk of a readmission just from the analysis. And we use the data, all these new payment models, we have to figure out who the patient is. And most hospitals don't know what DRG they're going to put them into until day five or maybe two days after the patient's discharge. And we need to guess at that on day two. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have... predictive analytics that run against their data. In fact, our predictive analytics, we're even watching their coders to see how they behave. And so 
Pete may behave differently than Sally. And so we actually have it down to predicting how Sally's going to code a patient into what DRG versus, versus Pete. Interesting. And, um, Otherwise, we don't know what DRG they're in, and we don't know if they fall into a bundle or not that's covered by the hospital. So you gave me some statistics. Um, let me see if I get them right. Um, I think there's about uh, $13 billion today being spent by the government in bundled payments. Uh, that's care delivery spend. Uh, about $5.2 billion is running through your model. Was that, is that right? About 250 thousand patients a year or so I get all that, that the uh, the government the estimate of the government spending is a remedy estimate okay. based on going on to the CMS uh, website and just making our best guess I haven't seen the number yet out of the government but I bet we're pretty close okay um, and uh, that's a pretty good estimate of where remedies at so under that a two percent would be you know a hundred million dollars of of savings potentially to the government if uh, if all works out well. What is your assessment of the program to date? Are you saving? Obviously, for you to make money, you've got to save CMS money. Um, is this is this something that's got sustainability to it? Bundle payments are definitely going to work. We're not only going to save a hundred million dollars a year to the government just on our current program. But we expect to return to providers far more uh, savings and gain sharing than ACOs do dollar for dollar of, you know, dollar underspend. We, we think that the program will smoke ACO performance. Um, and the reason is that it's just a more granular program. As you and I both know, Steve, population health can sometimes take a long time to pay off. And bundle payments pays off immediately. Um, you see the results immediately. For the government, it's going to be an interesting question because they just launched the comprehensive, uh, the CCJR, it's Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Program, where they're mandating in 25% of U.S. hospitals, they're mandating bundle payments for basically DRGs 469 and 470, which is uh, joint replacement. Um, and by their own estimates over five years, by the government's own estimate over five years of the program, they will save $125 million dollars they're getting enormous reverb from for mandating the program. Uh, hospitals are not happy about it at all. <laughs> In most cases, people are, are criticizing the design of the program. And Remedy on its own is going to deliver $100 million annually. So over the same five-year period, we, we will deliver $500 million of savings to the government. And the CCGR program will, will deliver 125. And so you sort of have to ask yourself, why would the government suffer the brain damage of, of mandating these programs? Why not just open it up for more voluntary participation and let the private sector go at it? Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like 
it sounds like it might be a more appealing model for a hospital than full-blown ACO, just given that, you know, they would be managing very specific tasks, which is something a hospital ought to be able to do well. And they wouldn't have to get into the marketing business on the front end. They wouldn't have to get into the business of managing a lot of primary care encounters and, and other things. They can just focus on what goes on in the hospital. Do you think that's the way they're thinking, or are they, or are they at the same time do, they're doing this, they're planning to become leaders in the health insurance business? I think, I think you're on to it there, the latter. You know, this is sort of the mid-'90s replaying. Um, we're now... You know, 20 years later, just the same things happening again, and uh, they want to have control over all the spending, not just what happens uh, in their four walls. And I think we're finding, everyone's finding, it's much harder than they thought because the ACO performance so far, although it's been successful for the government because the government's there's far more dollars running through ACOs. I don't know what the number is, but they said that there's 444 uh, ACOs, so there must be $70 billion. So comparatively, there's around $70 billion of spending in ACOs versus 13 in bundle payments. Bundle payments is admittedly a, a nascent program comparatively, and it's not a permanently open program. It's still in its demo stage, just like ACOs were. But we expect it will open just like the ACOs. And I think over time you'll see a uh, shift from, from such ACO dominance to bundle payments paying for a much bigger role. And certainly that's our bet. That's mm -hmm. why we're all doing this. So 50% by 2018 if we believe CMS, right? Yeah, it's a tall payments. order. It is. It is, and you've got your work cut out for you um, in that area. Um, I think we're out of time, Steve, and it, I really appreciate right. your, uh, your joining us, and I'll look forward to seeing, uh, to seeing you at the conference in November. Good, good job doing this. Yep, I really appreciate it. Well, that was a great conversation about Remedy Partners' approach to bundled care. Thank you, Steve Krupa for inviting Steve Wiggins of Remedy Partners onto your show and for uh, leading such an interesting conversation. Both Steve Krupa and Steve Wiggins will be at our upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit on November 3rd in Boston at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. For information about the agenda or to register, go to digitalhealthcaresummit.com. We'll see you in Boston in just a couple of weeks.